what the Word says. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bictham and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the, uh, the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asherias. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Asherias promoted Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamadaeth, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, and the king so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he declined to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Asherias. In the first month, which is the month of Nishan, then in the twelfth year of King Asherias, they cast pur, which that is they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Asherias, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be, be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of, the, of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agite, the son of um, Amadeus, the, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written in the king's, to the king's satraps and to the governors of all the provinces and to the officials of all the people to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Asherias and sealed with the king's signet rings. Letters were sent by, by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be uh, issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So one of the questions that it's helpful to ask often is, who is in control? 
Who is in control? Who is God going to um, help? Is God going to deliver? Is God able to deliver? And is our trust and our peace and our assurance in the ability, in the providence, in the care of God? In our passage that we read this morning, everything is going from really bad to even worse. The the last verse in chapter 3 is one of those great biblical understatements. The capital, the the citadel city was, was greatly troubled. It was in great confusion. That's because official government king declaration had gone out to every province, to every people, to every hamlet, city, and town with, a, with an official decree that on a particular day in the 12th month that every Jew was to be murdered, that their stuff was to be plundered. And that was for every old and young women and children, man and boy, every Jew was to be annihilated. It was, a, it was an officially sanctioned genocide. And you can imagine if you were a Jew And that was being read in public where in your town, in your city, that you would be very much um, concerned and troubled. Mordecai is a lower official in the king's palace. We begin with a brief account of how one day he's sitting in the palace, probably just doing his work, and he happens to overhear a plot again against King Asherias. And we're pretty confident that this was not unusual. It probably happened often because King Asherias, several years later, would actually die at the hands of an assassin. But being a good official and actually supporting the king, Mordecai tells Esther. Esther tells the king. It is investigated. It's found out to be true. And the king is saved. And it is recorded that Mordecai uh, did this. But that's where the story ends. And we're going to talk later how that's a little unusual and how that is actually part of God's providence because what Mordecai should have received was recognition and the, the, the Persians were well known for lavishing riches and honors and celebrations over those that pleased the king. But Mordecai did not receive any of that. All he really gets is the hatred of a man named, named Haman. So we end chapter 2 with Mordecai should have receiving praise and adoration and riches. He gets none. Chapter 3 begins with Haman, and it seems like out of nowhere, at least from a biblical account, he's risen to uh, prominence. And he's clearly a man who uh, is an evil person, who has, as in his, he's anti-Semitic. He, when, he, when he finds out that Mordecai is not giving him the, the, the deference that he thinks he's due, instead of uh, attacking Mordecai individually, he very um, wickedly sees this as an opportunity to, to enact genocide against all of the Jews. Haman is advancing. Mordecai is forgotten. And I think in this most unsettling moment, we will find, I hope we will see today, a testimony to the providence of God. That is, we will witness, I hope, how God is providing for the deliverance of his people even while they are unaware. So three ways or three areas of providence I want us to see this morning. I want us to see providence and timing. God's timing is perfect even when we can't figure out how it is and what it is. Providence in timing, providence in prospering. There's a reason why God elevates, and sometimes God leaves you right where you are. He's working out his perfect will. And then providence in the future, that 
God has tomorrow squarely in his grasp and under his control. But let's begin with providence of timing. Dear friends, I believe, and I think you see in this passage, in in these chapters, that God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. As the testimony unfolds, there is a clear sense of unfairness here. So there's a sense of unfairness where Mordecai should have received recognition but doesn't. And Haman, of course, we're not told anything previous of of chapter 3, but it seems like Haman just goes straight from nowhere to everywhere. I mean, he goes straight to being number two in the king's uh, uh, court. In chapter chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, records the service that Mordecai gave to the king. He exposes a plot. He could have said nothing. He could have let the king die, and he could have even assisted that. But he rewards the king. And the custom of this day, was that the, and the expectation was, is that Mordecai should have received all kinds of things. So he should have been lavished with wealth. The king customarily would have given wealth to Mordecai. And, 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 and typically, the, 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 there would have been a, a celebration of Mordecai. And, and we'll see later uh, in, in the testimony of Esther that, that, that they're, they're riding through town and celebrating and, and giving honors. That was all Persian custom of celebrating those who had served well the king. But, but all this, but none of this is done for Mordecai. In fact, the only thing that happens is, is that in the king's presence, it's recorded in the book of Chronicles, the official ledger of things that are happening, the king's journal, if you will. And in contrast to Mordecai is the introduction of Haman in chapter, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 3. And there we see that he's promoted, that he's elevated above every other official, and he enjoys the outward submission of everybody. So the Bible says when he shows up, everybody's bowing down and celebrating him and, and honoring him. Now, you and I, we could get lost in the intrigues and the intricacies of court politics It is interesting to note that every court that has ever been in the face of the earth has had intrigue and intricacies and and politics. And we could get lost in that and and why there there were assassination attempts and who's supporting who. And some commentators suggest that maybe there was a faction that supported Vashti and, and they were upset about her being deposed and Esther being elevated and all the rest. But all of us can identify with what it seems to, uh, to Mordecai that he has not received what is, is fair to him even while others have enjoyed success. You may not appreciate the intrigue of Persian politics, but you certainly can appreciate when somebody else gets the job that you thought you deserved. You can appreciate when somebody else gets rewarded when your efforts seem to be ignored. You can appreciate when it seems that those who are not trying as hard, maybe not working as hard, maybe not even gifted and skilled as well as you, seem to advance while you can't get traction in your career or or where you are. We can sympathize with Mordecai if he had felt like he had been forgotten or if God had forgotten him. We can sympathize with Mordecai if he felt he was not being rewarded as he should It is in this very moment of not receiving what was due that I think we see the perfect timing of God. God would remind the king of Mordecai's service, not in this moment, but in the perfect moment to rescue the Jews and to fulfill his will. 
And I think we will find that it may often seem as though God's timing is slow. It may sometimes seem as if God has forgotten or not acted when he should have or not acted as quickly as he should have. But I also think as we read through the book of Esther and we see how God perfectly appoints his timing, that we will see over and over again God's timing is perfect. I believe when Mordecai is recognized, he will go, oh, I get it now. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for waiting and being patient. You see, God is active even when it seems he is waiting. Now, I don't know how you are, but I know my own heart here, and that is that I tend to be very impatient with waiting on God to act. Here's how most of my prayer life goes. God, here's what I think you need to do, and I really think you should have done it yesterday. Amen? Maybe you don't pray like that, but I do. Oh, God, here's a need that I see, and it needs to be met right now. And, and, and I know the Bible teaches us that we ought to pray persistently and, and faithfully, and so two days later I'm like, oh, how long is it going to take, God? Because I'm impatient. We pray for God to act now. We pray for God to move immediately. We pray for God to rescue presently. And when God waits to act, we often perceive it as though God is not seeing what is happening or God is not moving quickly enough. When Mordecai did not receive his due reward, it must have seemed like God didn't see what really happened. God, did you not see what I did? Did you not see how I served? When Haman rose in political power, it must have seemed like things were out of control. That's not fair. I served the king, and yet I'm forgotten. Haman does really nothing recorded in Scripture, and he's second in command. When the decree went out that all the Jews were to be killed, it must have seemed like God was not acting quickly enough. Can you imagine getting the morning paper and reading on the headlines? On this particular day, on this particular month, every Jew will be murdered, killed, destroyed, old and young, man and woman, boy and girl. Don't you know there was some prayer time going on then? And don't you know that intensity of prayer was, God, you got to act right now? But friends, even while it seems like God was waiting, he was actively working. Even while it seems like God was slow to act, he was actively working, working to provide the recognition for Mordecai at the most opportune moment, working to provide time for Esther to, to influence the king, working to provide time for Haman to ensnare himself. Friends, God is always working to provide for his people, even when it doesn't seem like he is. If God has told you, wait, that doesn't mean he's not working. It means literally wait. If God seems like he's slow to action, it doesn't mean that he's, that, he's, that he's somehow hindered. It means that his perfect timing is intended for later, and he's working presently for the, the bringing about of his will. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this, this idea that, that, that there's providence in God's timing and understand that his timing is perfect? And I think what we do is we obey presently and trust God with everything else. You hear me? Obey presently and trust God with everything else. You and I cannot understand the ways of God. I don't know everything about chapter 2 and 3, but I know this. Mordecai nor Esther had any clue how God was going to rescue them. There was not a Jew in the land that had any clue how God was going to rescue them. 
So what do you do? You obey presently and you trust God with everything else. We cannot understand the ways of God. We cannot know how God is working. You and I are called to obey in the present and trust God with working out his will perfectly. Friends, I think it is arrogant sin for us to demand to know how God is going to act before we submit to obedience. We were talking Wednesday night in Bible study, and I said one of the things that we spiritualize our disobedience is, is that we stand in prayer before God and we go, God, I need to know everything that's going to happen before I take a step of faith and obedience. And that's just not how the Word of God works. It's not how God interacts with us. What did God say to Abraham? He said, get up and go to land. I'll show you when you get there. That was us praying. We'd be like, that's fine, God. You got to send me a map with waypoints and bathroom stops and everything else before I'll even get in the car. No, dear friends. Like Mordecai and Esther, we must obey presently and trust God with everything else. It must have seemed like at the end of chapter 3 that everything was lost. But regardless of what it may seem like, you and I must obey. Obey and be faithful to God's commands even when you don't understand how God is going to work out his will. Obedience in the presence is a testimony of faith that God's timing is perfect. It is, dear friends. And the testimony that you believe and trust the perfect timing of God is in your obedience in the present and trusting God with everything else. There's providence in God's timing and there's providence in God's prospering. So perception is not always reality. I really wanted to say perception is not reality, but, but I, I backed up a little bit. Perception is not always reality. At the end of chapter 3, it seems like Mordecai is going to be destroyed. Haman is prospering and growing in power, and the Jews are doomed, likely to be totally annihilated. That's what you would have to assume if you were a Jew at the end of chapter 3. By the way, even in this present moment, in this moment of our lives, it seems like evil is winning. Secularism is prospering. The church is in decline. And those who wish to destroy the church seem to be growing in political influence and power. I don't know if you're keeping aware of things, but even right now there is legislation in, in, the, in the U.S. Congress called the Equality Act And most people who understand that law say it is the greatest threat to religious liberty that has faced our nation to date. And how is it able to get legs in our our legislative branch? Because secularism is growing and those who are openly opposed to the church seem to be growing in power and influence. And it's helpful, friends, to remember that throughout history there have been a lot of moments when world leaders declared that God's people were going to be destroyed or that the church would be no more. Now, by the way, as a side note to that, anytime you decide you want to oppose God and God's people, you will lose. Haman decided he was going to oppose God and oppose God's people, and he did lose. History is full of those who made the same mistake. In every instance where the world stood up and said, I will show God who is greater, God's people were delivered, the church remained, and those who opposed God lost. 
Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We will not fear is what the psalmist is saying. No matter what it looks like, the truth is God is in control. Somebody say amen. Listen, I don't care what the news says. God is in control. Amen. It doesn't matter what the legislator does. God is in control. It doesn't matter what the president declares. God is in control. He always has been. He is and he will forever be. God is working out his perfect plan. The gospel witness will remain. The church will remain. Jesus will return. The kingdom of God will come, and evil will be defeated. That has always been. It is still true today. It will be brought about by the perfect will of God. There is providence in prospering. God is working to prosper and to provide for us and his will perfectly, and it's important for us to understand that what it may seem like is not the reality. The end of chapter 3 seemed like the evil that the, the Jews were doomed, but that was not the reality. You see, friends, God will keep his promises. One of the great questions that must have been on the heart of every Jew was, whether or not God's promise to them still applied. Now, without going through all of, uh, of uh, Israel's history, the, the over, the, the sort of the summary of it is when God established them in the promised land, the land that God showed Abraham, the promise that God made his people is as long as you keep my commandments, I'll keep you in the land. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. If you disobey my commandments, God said, the land will spew you out. Well, they did disobey the commandments of God. They did act wickedly toward God. And as a consequence of that, God allowed by his sovereign will Babylon to come and destroy them and to take them into captivity. Now, it's many years after that. Babylon has fallen. Now Persia is in control. And if you're living in Persia as a captive of, of the Persian, you're, you're likely multiple generations now into captivity. And it would be easy to appreciate why they might have wondered does God's promise even apply to us? Have we gone too far? Has it been too long since we have been in the promised land for the promises of God to even apply? Mordecai, Esther, and all the Jews likely feared that it had been so long and that they had been in captivity so long that God's promises no longer applied to them. But, but listen to me. Here's the glorious truth. And I mean, this is a good one. The glorious truth is this. God's promises are not dependent on the faithfulness of man. God's promises are dependent on the faithfulness of God himself. Somebody say amen. <laughs> you aren't saved because of your faithfulness. You're saved because of the faithfulness of God. Hallelujah. You weren't redeemed because of you or your family, your grandparents, your great-grandparents' faithfulness. You're redeemed because God was faithful to you to chase after you with the gospel to undeserving people. 
Israel will be delivered from Haman's wrath, not because they, de- they deserve it, not because they earned it, but because God is faithful. Even while they weren't faithful, God was faithful to them because his promises are not dependent upon us. His promises are dependent upon him, and he is faithful and true from all of eternity past to all of eternity present. Did the Jews in Persia deserve God's protection and restoration to the promised land? And the answer to that is a resounding no. But God would be faithful to both protect them and to restore them. Do any of you here today deserve God's continued grace in your life? The resounding answer to that is no. But God will be faithful to fulfill every last promise in our lives. So friends, I think we should find comfort in God's will, not man's success. We see in these two chapters that contrast where it seems evil is advancing and righteousness is not. That may be true at your work right now. It's certainly true in in the greater society that we live in If you want to get ahead, if you want to advance in the academic world, in the business world, in the political world, the the, the avenue for that is not righteousness, it's wickedness. When you look at the world, there will be much cause for despair. When you consider who is prospering and seceding in this world, it will seem that the wicked are advancing. The testimony of Scripture is a testimony of God's providence over the fullness of time, meaning God is fulfilling his will. God is fulfilling his purposes. God is fulfilling his promises. And you and I must find our comfort in the sureness of God's will, not in the seemingly success of man in the present. Presently, the kingdoms of man rule, but there is coming a day when the kingdom of God will reign and reign eternally. Presently, wickedness seems to be advancing, but there is coming a day when sin will be defeated and God's righteousness will be perfected. God is prospering his will and his kingdom, and that's where we must find our comfort. Now, there's one last thing here. and I just put this in the context of providential future. Now, the reality of it is none of us No one of man can know the future. This is pretty humbling to realize. You and I don't even really remember the past perfectly. You get five people in the room, and you try to tell an accurate story of what happened 10 minutes ago, five uh, five years ago, 10 years ago, and if you'll isolate them and let them tell their story separately, you'll get five different stories. We can't remember five minutes ago perfectly And we have no clue about what the future is going to hold. All we really know is the present, and even that is seen through our own perspective, uh, our lens of perspective. We cannot know the future. The last verse of chapter 3 ends with a very ominous word. Susa was thrown into confusion. That's one of those great biblical understatements. Can you imagine what it must have been like? I mean, the date was put on the calendar. What I have in my mind's eye is, the, whatever the Jews had that, were, that, was, um, that was valuable, or can you imagine their neighbors looking at it going, oh, let's just say it's de- December the 14th. Come December the 14th, brother, that boat's going to be my boat. 
Your house is going to be my house. I can imagine it was hard to find work. Why would I want to hire you? You're about to die. This was certainly an, a difficult day. Legal instructions had been sent to every section of the land with instructions that the Jews were to be annihilated on the 13th day of the 12th month. In fact, the word that is used is destroyed, to kill, to annihilate. And then to make clear who it is intended for, it is all Jews, young and old, women and children, and then to plunder all their goods. That's probably where Haman thinks he's going to get this large sum of money that he's going to give to the king. Chapter 3 ends with a sense that all is lost and impending doom. And I think at the end of chapter 3, Haman thought that he was in control of what was going to happen to the Jews. In fact, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really strange contrast where Haman and the king are sitting having drinks. My mind's eye is they've got their feet up. They're enjoying the good life of kingly wealth, even while the nation is thrown into confusion. Haman thought he was going to be in control of what was going to happen to the Jews. The Jews thought they were going to all die, but both thought they knew what the future was going to be. But here's the truth. Man cannot know the future. Man cannot predict the future. Man cannot control the future. Did you hear me? You cannot know it, you cannot predict it, and you cannot control it. We can only make plans for what tomorrow may be, but we cannot know the future. And we do that, don't we? We're planning for retirement. I hope someday that comes. I don't see how it's ever going to get here, but I hope someday it comes. That's planning for the future. But friends, I cannot know if I'll live to the day that I'll be able to enjoy that. I can't know if, if God won't return. Jesus won't return before now and then. I can't predict anything about the future. All I can do is make plans for what tomorrow may be, but I cannot know the future so I think the response from us is we must not fret over what men say will be. Listen to me. We must not fret over what men say will be. We rather must rest in what the Lord declares will be. Do you hear me? No man can know the future, so don't fret over what men say will come. Rest and have your peace in what God has declared will come. And he has said his will will be fulfilled. And his kingdom will come. You see, God perfectly knows the future. God perfectly knows every moment of the past, every moment of the present, and every moment of the future. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. Just listen with me. Just a sampling of some scriptural testimonies to this. Jeremiah says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Who knows? God knows. Job declares, since his days are determined and the numbers of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. In other words, God knows the number of your days. Proverbs chapter 19, many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Psalm 139 says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. The city of Susa may have been in confusion, but there was never a moment when God did not know perfectly every event that would transpire. And that gives a sense of hope that God perfectly knows the future. 
And so I would simply say to you, dear friends, that God presently provides, and listen to this, this context, God presently provides for the future. Presently provides for the future. I know it's a strange way to say it, but what, what I'm trying to communicate is that because God knows what tomorrow will bring, that means, therefore, he is currently, presently working and providing for what we will need even before we will need it. So as a, one of the things of, of being a pastor is, is that often I have the opportunity to be with families and, and folks when, when, uh, when moments of crisis come. Now, those are always, we've all had those moments of crisis where something has come upon us that is, that, that, that is terrifying, something that's come upon us that is, that is heart-wrenching, and the, the, the emotional response in those moments is typically to, to feel a sense of urgency or a sense that somehow things have gone as they should not have gone. They're out of control. And so oftentimes, if you're a Christian, the, the prayer response is, oh, God, you've got to do something right now because things are really bad, and, and I need some help right now. And if I've said this once, I've said it a thousand times. If I have prayed this once, I have prayed this a thousand times. In those moments, so often, in fact, if I've been with you in a moment like that, then you've heard me say this. God knew this moment was coming before we did. And because God knew this moment was coming before we did, I am confident that he is already provided for this moment. Meaning, God is presently, right now, preparing for and providing for your future. He does know what tomorrow brings. He does know what you will face tomorrow. And as a result, he is presently providing for you. Mordecai and Esther, nor all the Jews could see it. But God had already provided for their rescue and the destruction of Haman. In fact, in the weeks to come when we see how Haman falls, you will see that all the things that, that caused Haman's demise are right here in the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. God had already provided for what he was going to do in the future. Friends, God is working today to provide for our tomorrow because God is providentially working even for what he knows will come in our future. I hope that gives you a sense of hope, a sense of peace. I saw this in the, in the life of my own children several years ago. Um, when our kids were little, uh, there was a season of time. I, every summer, I, I attend the, the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, and Usually, Dana is my travel partner. But there was a season when our kids were little that, that she couldn't travel with me. And so I think just by the, 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 the kindness of God, we had the idea to let me take one kid at a time on those trips. It turned out to be a wonderful opportunity for me to have a week of one-on-one -on -one time and, and to make some wonderful memories of traveling with the kids. And it was, it was really sweet. So I started with Benjamin, and, and we worked our way all the way to Joshua. Well, for many of them, when they traveled with me, that, there were a lot of firsts. So it was the first time for them to, to fly on a plane or first time for them to, to stay in a fancy downtown hotel and the first time for them to ride in taxis and all the things you do when you're, when you're traveling like that. When, when Molly went with me, she was, she was eight years old. Now, my boys, when they traveled, they were just loosey-goosey, whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. We're, we're going to make it. But, but Molly likes to know specifics and details. She wants to make sure that we got things covered. And so I noticed as we, even before we left Jacksonville, there were a lot of questions about, now, Dad, are we going to miss the plane? 
are they going to leave without us? Now, when we get there, who's going to pick us up? And where are we going to eat supper tonight? And does the hotel know we're coming? And how do they know it's us when we get there? And, and, and I could just tell you, as the, as the early days, the early moments of that trip were unfolding, there was, a, there was a sense of her anxiety that she wasn't real sure because she'd never been in a, in a major airport before. She didn't know how you got on airplanes. She didn't know how you called a cab. And she didn't know how you made a hotel reservations and the itinerary. And she didn't know any of that. And the lack of knowledge of what was going to come and how she was going to handle all those things were creating in her a deep, deep sense of anxiety. And at first, I would just sort of say, oh, sweetie, I've got that covered. We'll, we'll find, we'll. In fact, my dad voice was, ah, we'll figure it out when we get there. Now, that's not completely true. I had made plans. I had a hotel reservation. I knew, but I didn't say, oh, sweetie, it's, it, don't worry about it. We, we'll get there. But I noticed as the, as the trip continued, her anxiety grew and grew and grew and grew. So at some point early on, we just had to stop. And I, I felt like I just needed to confront the issue. And I said, sweetheart, do you trust that I'm going to take care of you. Yes, sir. So, sweetheart, do you believe that I'm going to make sure you get fed for every meal? Yes, sir. So, do you believe that I have the ability to make sure that we go and that I bring you home safe and sound to your mama? Yes, sir. And so I said, sweetheart, the only thing you got to worry about is stick with me, and I'll make sure that everything is taken care of for you. And for the most part, after that, we had a great time. She didn't worry about how to get a cab. She knew her dad could figure that out. She didn't worry about how to check in or check out of a hotel. She figured her dad had that. She didn't worry about the flight schedule. Her dad had that. And she knew that I was going to make sure she was fed, she was protected, she's provided for, and that she was brought home safe to her family. Now, folks, here's where we are. You can't know what tomorrow brings. There are a thousand million billion things that you cannot control. But some of you are desperately trying to. And it's creating all kinds of anxiety in you. You're worried. And some of your prayer lives are filled with anxious prayers. Oh God, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? How am I going to take care of this? What am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do next year? What happens if this happens in 10 years from now? And all those things that I think from the testimony of Mordecai and Esther, we can see this simple truth. God's got this. God's providential care for you has this. He knows what tomorrow will bring. He knows the crisis that you're going to face in 10 minutes, in 10 years, 20 years. He knows what you're going to need and has provided perfectly. He's provided for you in the timing. He's provided for you in your prospering or lack thereof. And he's provided for your future. Because the providential God who cares for us is providing for us. And our response is even when the whole world seems like it is turned upside down and is absolutely going from bad to worse to even worse, is to trust the providential care of a God who can and will take care of us.